Monkey to Let Go, the podcast platform of the Phenomenalist, by Leopold Lambert. Today, producing a podcast about the city, safety, and identities with Jessica Myers. Hello everyone, today I'm talking with uh, Jessica Myers, who's a, a master student and researcher at MIT and a fellow podcaster, so we're going to try something uh, today which is uh, something along the lines of a conversation or uh, actually uh, uh, um, me answering questions that uh, <laughs> Jessica usually uh, usually asks and then we'll talk about this work that uh, she's doing around around those questions and those series of interviews that she's currently doing in Paris. Uh, hello, Jessica. Hello. <laughs> uh, so uh, I guess I'm going to I'm going to let you uh, take it from here and then we'll I'll, cu I'll get back with uh, some questions for you to keep it within uh, the series of uh, Archipelago podcast. <laughs> okay, let's make this like a like a tight 30 minutes so you have sure. your so you have your time as well. Okay. So Jessica, you you just interviewed me and I'm I think that because of the way you because of the amount of interviews that you're you're doing, um, uh, I kind of suspect you have a sort of very established uh, modus operandi, and you 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 have uh, almost the same questions for everyone. Uh, can you, or or maybe not, but c can you maybe tell us more about about that and where where those questions uh, come from, so to speak? Yeah, definitely. I'm I. So even before coming here, just uh, having an understanding of what I wanted to do, I had to bring my questions and what I would, what I'd be asking people and how I'd be engaging people before the ethics committee uh, at my school. So I mean, hence the consent forms and things like that. Um, so I had come into these interviews with very much like a pre-prepared um, set of questions. But I think that what I what I really love about doing, especially doing this volume of interviews, is beginning to see, and this usually happens within the first five interviews, the similarities of like the concerns that start to emerge. So I start to rewrite my own questions um, and start touching on those themes that I see coming out of of people's. Um, of people's interviews so I'd say that definitely the interviews from the beginning the questions that I asked in those interviews are very different from you know after the first five you sort of take off with what people are showing you is important to them and in, in the case of Paris what what would those similarities be because I mean I I'm so much into it I'm not I'm not even sure I would I would notice them myself um, so themes that I mean, these will probably become episodes of the podcast because um, the way that the podcast is sort of formed is off of is how you see those, the cross between interviews that we've done and where people are overlapping and trying to bring those overlaps into a conversation, uh, sort of bringing people into a room together where they, people who would never meet uh, into a room together. And... Um, 
I'd say that the my favorite themes are definitely uh, frontier or boundaries. Um, things that, like the way that people interact with the periphery, for example, mm. the way that people interact with the Seine, the way that people interact with where they understand East and West Paris to be, um, where they understand the boundary to have crossed. So, I, I mean, in one interview, uh, someone told me, uh, and something that really made me think was, you know, she grew up in a neighborhood right next to Paris before the periphery was constructed. So she, where she lived was considered to be Paris, and then after it was constructed, it wasn't. So, like, the strength of that boundary, the strength of the periphery in, like, the imaginary of Paris, I think is, is really interesting to me, um, just from, I guess, what you could say, like, a sociological standpoint, but also from, also, like, an architectural standpoint, from the, um, unlike... In many American cities, you know, the periphery doesn't cut through. I mean, there are major roads, obviously, major auto routes that go throughout Paris, but it doesn't, like, slice neighborhoods in half in the way that uh, highways in the United States did. So the thing that the periphery does that's so interesting is makes Paris, makes Paris entremeros, and then everything else is just the Parisian region. So, you know, you have the the arrondissements that do that obviously but it was this moment in like the 50s of like building that project that really made it like this is where Paris ends and then this is everyone and everything else yeah which is which is crazy because we we keep considering Paris being what's inside when actually four four fifths of the population lives outside of it so um and so, and so this is this um, this series that you're doing right now in Paris, and I mean we're we're talking about something like 25 interviews or something like that. Or? Yeah, we're almost at uh, 30 interviews. We'll oh, probably wow. hit 30 by, before I leave. Yeah. Wow. Okay. So this is going to be fascinating. Uh, so maybe let's talk about that first, actually. And uh, who 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 are the people that you interviewed? So I really um, what I liked about the season that I did in New York. Uh, outside of the sound quality, of course, <laughs> was um, how different the people that I was interviewing were. So um, here, I was really looking for like let me find like people as different as possible, um, and uh, trying to approach as many different kinds of people as possible. And even though I'm doing like I've, I'm probably going to be able to do 30 interviews, I probably got tried to get in contact with and and see if I could talk to about 70 people. So. Um, I have sort of like doggedly so in the beginning of doing the interviews when people ask you okay what's the profile of the person that you want to talk to and I'm just like I want to talk to everybody Um, and then you start to get when you start to get your first sample of people you're just like okay I need more people who are conservative I need more people who live in the west I need more people who are of Asian origin or I need more people who are LGBTQ um because I think it's really important to show, especially to an American audience that doesn't really get this image, how diverse um, how diverse Paris is. And I think that's something that when I came here, the first time I came here, I was 16. Um, and to see that uh, like blew my mind because, I mean, I had been taking French classes since I was 11. So, you know, you know about the colonies, you know... Um, 
you have some some bearing some history of the city but you don't really get the idea that it's all mixed up in the capital city and also just like how central Paris is that everybody has to come through here for some reason or another be it for school for business for um, politics for whatever everything is so forcefully based here uh, all roads lead here like you know all trains leave from here mm. um, so it's just like there is so much happening here that doesn't get translated to an American audience and it's just like a deep desire of mine to show that that quality of Paris that really struck me when I was a teenager and when when we first met we actually talked about um, maybe the the rest of what might not well translate between uh, between France and the US and and really uh, it's it's a reciprocal uh, uh, thing and I think uh, uh, people like you and me who know a little bit of both uh, are maybe able to to talk about this translation, this not a happening translation, uh, but do you could you maybe tell us a little bit your the way you see this uh, non-translation opera- operating between uh, so- not just cities but societies? Yeah, I mean, uh, two words that, that come to mind, and one that we've like talked talked between ourselves before. One being popular. How do you how <laughs> do you how do you describe what a popular neighborhood is in Paris? Um, you might say something like low income, but it doesn't, like, popular has such a thick history to it where it's just, like, it's it's not just, you know, working class. It's also, uh, like, the political um, engagement of that class of people. It's also, like, a history of revolt, a history of communism, a history of agitation, Um, of reform um, that's involved there that's like sort of like this very thick coating on top of um, you know what a popular neighborhood is so you know you could say that that is just low income but there is something on top of that that really plugs into very Parisian as well as a very French history Um, and I think that another another word that comes to mind is mixité so this and I think that from the interviews that I've been doing, that there is a difference between the concept of mixité and the concept of diversity in the United States. So I think in diversity in the United States, it's sort of just like, oh, we'll have one Asian person and one black person and one uh, white person, and they'll hold hands and there'll be a rainbow painted on top of it, and that's when you get diversity. But I think that mixité has a certain kind of there again i guess i'll say a certain thickness to it in in french that doesn't translate where it's just like yeah it's a it's a racial mix it's also a class mix and it's also sort of like an interne- intersectionality of those mixes um and even people that i've talked to have also said um like the neighborhoods that where they feel more comfortable have a certain amount of mixité which means that the there will be like the young hip bars that are coming but there's also the like older Arab man who's been going to that bar for 20 years stays there as well so it's not you know in in the American sense of gentrification where people are getting chased out it's like being able to find some balance of people living together on a top and and sort of mixed together and 
being able to see some people have said like that's when I'm able to see my entire identity reflected in a place like I can't just be at a bar that is cool because I mean that's fine but it ends up being almost very cold um, and I don't want to just be um, in a neighborhood that's completely an immigrant neighborhood where um, you have the culture of one place uh, reflected because even though that is me I am also of this almost cosmopolite like um, hip cool hipsterish class so it's just like being able to take all pieces of yourself with you wherever you go and seeing it reflected in a place is is mixite and I don't think that's what Americans talk about when they mean when they're talking about diversity well I mean so so there's clearly some differentiation between uh, the way gentrification happens in the in the United States and 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 in France and I mean part of it is because of the 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 high degree of uh, legislation that prevents it to happen at a at a very fast pace and uh, that also has to do with uh, the in inamovability of of uh, social housing uh, still within the city of Paris which I think is is sort of uh, if not saving the situation, at least saving some time in the way um, the situation ha- is happening. But is there is there another way you would you would read uh, this differentiation uh, from from the U.S. to to here? Uh, yeah, I mean, if you everyone, I feel like the, the case study of gentrification in the United States is always like New York and Brooklyn. Mm. Um, I think that one, there's like a historical difference that. Paris didn't have this process of divestment and, and white flight happen in the cities where sort of the wealth just leaves and there's no there's no reinvestment into like you know schools or or infrastructure and you know you didn't have this process of people devaluing neighborhoods to such a degree that they can just ram a highway through it and and you know the contributions in the history of that place are completely um, destroyed. So that that doesn't that didn't that is not the history of of Paris. And I think that they that New York and Paris are in this similar situation where you're responding to and you're dealing with the pressures of um, globalism of becoming a global city. Of what what does that look like? What does that mean? Does that mean that there's you know. Um, a craft coffee shop on every corner mm-hmm. or um, and something that another person that I spoke with was talking about was the difference between um, a neighborhood where like the commerce and the cafes are changing and a neighborhood where like the people who live above those those cafes are being chased out um, to like deconstruct and reconstruct and I think that what you were talking about before like this the slowness is definitely a saving grace because you don't have <coughs> because you don't have um, like you do in um, New York a desire to like let's buy let's buy a whole block raise it and then put condos on it mm-hmm. so it you you don't have those situations where it's just like a couple of neighbors are trying to hold out or trying to hold on to their to their apartments and not get displaced. Um, you know, I worked on in the spring semester of this this year of my master's in a neighborhood in the third ward in Houston, um, and it's a very it's right next to the downtown of Houston. Like Houston's a very weird 
and you, if you think about scale, it's a very strange city because you have basically these one-story shotgun houses um, right next to the downtown and these skyscrapers and this commerce. So what's happening to that neighborhood is people are buying up whole blocks of, blocks of historical row houses, raising them, and then putting condos on top of it, which you know is is dangerous in terms of just like completely losing. Uh, a historical neighborhood, but it's also dangerous in terms of like just like the infrastructure. Like that's a neighborhood that's used to having one-story family homes, and now you've dropped a condo on top of it, and you haven't done anything about that plumbing. So Houston already has a huge issue with flooding. So it's just like that the speed to which gentrification happens in the United States completely negates all else. It's just like, are we thinking ecologically? No. Are we thinking about uh, longevity? No. Are we thinking that oh if oil is getting cheaper, is the business that's booming in, in the downtown of Houston going to remain the same? No, no one thinks about that. It's sort of just like, how do you turn over a dollar in this moment? How do you capitalize on this uh, trend of people wanting to live in these certain neighborhoods without uh, an idea of like the longevity of the housing, the safety of the housing? And I think that in Paris, because of that slowness, there is almost like a, a, a safety for the city. Also, um, I, I mean, I doubt that Hasmonean facades and uh, like zoning heights are going anywhere in Paris anytime soon. But I think the slowness of that change, uh, especially like in considering density and like what what increasing density will mean for infrastructure and and things like that, is like is good. <laughs> you know, it's very good. Um, and also just returning to that idea of mixité if you have commerce that's changing and and residents who are not you can see for a moment in a way that that you can't always in the states just like the value of having these two populations of people cross over and meet each other and see valuing each other uh that that doesn't really happen in places like Williamsburg for example where you just want to be around your cool bars and you don't really want to see like the old Dominican family that used to live there or the old Orthodox Jewish family that used to live there. Like, um, there's no desire. I feel like there's, there is a desire to be a bit closed in and not have to think about other people's lives and, and struggles, which is what this moment, those moments that are happening in, like, Belleville, that are happening in the Mini Montant, in, um, in Guimauque to an extent... Uh, where you can be walking on a road that's, you know, a couple blocks away from the Parc Monceau, and then you see, like, African shops and colors and and restaurants and things like that. And it's just, like, to have that moment of just, like, both of these things exist in the world and, like, can exist in the world is so valuable. <laughs> and so uh, this is a second series of uh, podcasts you're doing, the first one being in, being in New York, and both are oriented towards a notion of either safety or security, but mostly safety, I'd say. Uh, can it's it's actually genuinely surprising for me. Could could you? I mean, I I, I can definitely see how it's um, it's interesting also in the because your questions are quite personal, uh, and and some some people like me might try to escape from the personal, <laughs> but but uh, but. Um, so this might reveal um, in the in the sort of 
confrontations of all those all those uh, testimonies you're you've been collecting it, it, the confrontation might be the, the thing that reveals something interesting in the differentiation um, and the inequality of perception of safety and, and not safety but uh, but it remains genuinely a sort of surprise for me that uh, this would be the main uh, approach so could, could you maybe tell us why Um, I think that there there is a total richness to the idea of the way that people experience safety and it kind of intersects with so many things from people's identities to um, urban structures to architecture, things like that, uh, infrastructure to light, like public space, all, all of those things. And, and for me, I think that safety is something that, that I genuinely think about a lot because um, I'm from a family of four girls of uh, my parents. So I have three sisters and my parents, um, we were all born within a decade of each other. So, you know, my younger sister is like five years older, five years younger than me. My oldest sister is five years older than me. Uh, and then I have a sister who's, who's closer in age to me, who's like two years older than me. So you have this gaggle of girls that you're trying to bring up in New Jersey and how do you how do you keep them safe from all the things that like black little girls could be in danger of? And my fam, my, my parents sort of took a tact that was just like, let us ensure that they know all of the horrible news that comes out of New York, that comes out of, you know, where we lived in New Jersey, where we used to go to church in Newark, New Jersey. So they understand just like the gravity of, you know, stepping out or doing the wrong thing might visit upon them. So when we tell them to like change into a longer skirt, they understand what that means. And so I thought that like just this childhood that was in a way, uh, you know, despite having a relatively satisfying, you know, childhood, of um, where a lot of the rules are driven by fear. So, and even now as, you know, ostensibly an adult, when I am in the street, I have like a thousand little like alerts and and like little plans and escape strategies that like pop, are popping up in my mind just because that's sort of the way I was raised to a degree. And I, when I was thinking about this and, and also watching different, um, like different pieces of, film and art and things like Cecile Mecki's strolling series uh, she has one in Paris that's called Flaneur where people are talking people are walking through these spaces and sort of describing them and I thought oh yeah the way that people are moving through move through cities is very interesting and and then you have uh, this other series by I think this artist I think her name is Angela Mystiki I think that she is Australian she has a series called Citizens Band where it's sort of immigrants Um, in Australia, like Nigerian, Senegalese, um, Mongolian people, the, the way that their cultural identities is cro are crossing over with Australian identity. And I was like, yeah, that, the permutations of culture that come around are, are really interesting as well. And then finally, I read this book uh, by Juan Gabriel Vasquez that's called The Sound of Things Falling. And it's sort of talking about post... Um, like post-drug wars Bogota and the way that people's imaginary of like where violence could happen even though like you know Pablo Escobar like that era was over it still sits with them 
that mental map of where violent things happened and how to walk in the street so you don't get hit by a stray bullet from, you know, uh, like a drive-by or something like that. And, and, and even in spaces that, that are gentrifying in the United States where you think, where there's an idea of they were once violent spaces and now they're like hangout spots is um, interesting. So it's just like this, these permutations of identity and of culture and of safety all layered on top of each other. And then I was just like, you know, this is uh, thinking about, okay, how do you get at that? Um, and I was thinking, you know, let's try a mapping strategy, which is what I do with people as I have them, what, after we do the interview, just like um, me asking them questions about where they're feeling comfortable and like how they're moving through the city and things like that, is like, let's draw out a map of like where you felt safe as either either when you were a kid or when you first got to the city in question or and then how those change and I always think it's interesting for people to see their own maps of how those are moving around and how those maps the maps of each person relate to other people so I take those maps and I um I digitalize them and I do animations with them to sort of describe those overlaps and I think that I think that the question of safety is, as you said, jarring to people, because I don't think it's something that people are used to talking about. But I think it's something that people are really used to thinking about. Mm. Um, and it's one of those things where, I guess, it's so mundane in a way that it's like, oh, you know, this is not important. Plenty of people have told me like, oh, I have nothing interesting to tell you, and that's well, really that's on me to decide <laughs> whether you have anything interesting to say. But um, I just feel like the way that people's almost strategies for using a city are are defined by their state, by the way where they feel safe, and how where they feel safe is also defined by who they are, you know, racially, religiously, um, orientation-wise. Uh, that all feeds in, and people, in a way are so used to feeling unsafe in certain neighborhoods. When I say, like, when someone says to me, oh, I don't go to this neighborhood because, you know, I'm a woman and if I'm wearing, like, a if I'm wearing like a pair of shorts and I'm in that neighborhood, like, I know I'm going to get, like, it's just not worth it to be there. And it's just like, can you imagine, like, is that fair to just feel like I will, a whole neighborhood is just closed to me because I can, because of an identity that I am. And... To to sort of call that out and be like that's a that's a little that's a little fucked mm. is um, I think it surprises people because it's just not the way you're thought of thinking about it. You sort of take it as like facts are facts and that's the way that things are and you know I guess you know that's just the way it is. Um, yeah. Mm -hmm. But to and that would be my last question. But to 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 which degree do you think? that this entire rhetoric of safety and and the potential stigmatization of entire neighborhoods it might it might create and uh, and again it's not to it's not in any way to um, deny uh, feeling uh, obviously because those feelings are are here but um, um, don't you feel that part of this rhetoric is um, is uh, the, the type of speech that uh, Jadid Butler talks about, which is a, the speech that enacts itself while saying it. 
and I and I have a, a personal example. I'm bringing back a little bit of personal, <laughs> but uh, uh, for, I've been to Latin America only once, and I went there with no codes whatsoever about what would be uh, a neighborhood that is known as safe, and and one neighborhood that might not know known as safe. So sometimes I would get a post a post a retrospective speech of like oh you should have not gone there it's dangerous and it's quite interesting that if you if you if you were not uh if you do not have the sort of all the all this rhetorical stigma on a, on the neighborhood you might very well go there without 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 too much prejudice about it and and things might happen things might not happen you might have a great time you might feel a little bit weird uh but but the fact that you went there without having this sort of waves, rhetorical waves uh, rhetor re that creates this imaginary of safety, of, of probably insecurity, uh, uh, or in a sudden changes, uh, changes the way you perceive uh, your surrounding as well. So, um, I mean, I'll, I'll come back to this, to this first question. It's like, how, how much is it a, a, a speech that enacts itself? Yeah, I I think that that's true. That um, security conversation can be very manipulative and set up a an idea of just like. Uh, and this kind of comes from you know I I take these interviews and I also compare them to the what the national security rhetoric is uh, sort of like in in France right now, especially after the attacks. And I think it is very manipulative. But what it does is say everyone has one kind of fear. Everyone has one kind of sense of insecurity, and we can only respond to that sense of insecurity in one way, and that's like aggressive policing or these like huge shows of you know the gendarmerie is going to just surround the Eiffel Tower or or whatever whatever, and I think that that's actually completely ineffective in addressing the kinds of fears everyday fears that people are saying that they have. So it's just like. I completely agree that in talking, especially politically talking about insecurity, the response is always like, you know, like in the States when you have Black Lives Matter saying that, that police violence is wrong and it's creating incredible insecurity. And the response is always, but like, what about black on black crime? That's that's mm. the question that we need to be answering. And it's just like black on black crime is this thing called crime. Mm. And that's also your job to take care of. Um but what I think is so interesting coming out of these conversations is the way that insecurity or like safety and the way that people are feeling feel safe and don't feel safe have relatively little to do with what a police officer can take care of. So it's just like, you know, I was talking to one woman who was describing how they're uh, like a new gendarmerie or a new police station open close to her house. So there are like huge groups of like, you know, men, uh, armed men, <laughs> standing around on the street where she lives. And she'll walk by in, like, a short skirt, and she'll see that the police officers standing on the sidewalk are checking her out. And it's just, like, how with, is... With weapons. Yeah, and it's, like, how am I... How does that feel any different from, like, the teenage boys who stand in front of the, the high school doing the same thing? And it's just, like... So it's, it's like... A woman being able to wear a short skirt and have it not be an issue is not something that the police can really respond to. So it's just like, how can we make, how can we, and I think that this gets to the heart of just like hearing other people speak, 
hearing other people speak about their safety and like bring bringing that to the forefront is saying if we can just get an understanding of what's going through people's heads when they see us see us look at them in the street how can we how can we as individuals like make public space safer for each other by just not being being a little less horrible to each other because we have a better understanding of what people are going through like uh someone that I was talking to is saying you know she's a woman you know she dates women and she's just like sometimes when I take my girlfriend's hand there's all of this just like commentary all of these people feeling like they can approach us in this way um and that's not fair you know and just and it's not like a police officer will make it more fair it's not like a gun will make it more fair it's having someone speak up and saying it's not a big deal for me to hold my girlfriend's hand you shouldn't like why would you approach me in the street and sort of having that story out there saying that you are closing off a public space to somebody by trying to impose on them an idea of what of how they should behave or or what they should do or where they belong that's sort of on individual people to start changing their idea of like how we impose ourselves on others in public space and how we can be a little more how we can make public space a little more welcoming for each other in a way you know that that seems to me like a, a good a good conclusion so thank you very much Jessica and I, I hope this uh, little uh, conversation could be used as a teaser for your your second series of, yeah of definitely podcasts. I hope so too yeah, but I'm very much looking forward to it we're not done because there is a mapping exercise yeah. that you have to do <laughs> <laughs>